Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. And we are on episode 22. 22. That is correct. It's a quarantine edition. And we are continuing our Facing the Music series, if you will. This episode, we'll be discussing Dimebag Daryl and Sam Cook. And it'll be coming out a day later because... Kevin was feeling a tiny bit under the weather, and so we took some precautions and didn't record earlier, but you're feeling better now? Better now. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yes. So, how are you doing this week, besides being a little under the weather for the last couple days? Pretty good. I had... You had a Rona scare for a second. You got scared. I was worried about it. I so I work in a supermarket, and so I'm like kind of exposed, and so I had a bit of a sore you work throat. Naked? <laughs> it's an erotic supermarket. <laughs> Got to pay extra, but yes. Healthcare workers, grocery workers, you guys have to like face people face to face every day, constantly touching them. We got to touch them all over, just to make sure they're <laughs> not like. Stealing, stealing like, all the meat, stealing milk or any cheese or anything like that. Yeah, at the erotic market, got it. Uh, so they're pretty strict at the workplace with any kind of symptoms for, which is good. Yes. So you'll be going back in a couple of days uh, when you're totally free of symptoms, but we're glad you're better. We're glad. I have no idea. Like me and all the listener. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So you're going to start us off with Dimebag Daryl, correct? Yes. All right. So I actually don't know anything about this or Dimebag Daryl or Pantera. So this is all new to me. So we recorded that last night and we had to take a break because Kevin was feeling so good, in fact, that he had eight too many glasses of wine (laughs) and had to go barf. And so we are recording on Wednesday afternoon. How are you feeling now? I feel like I'm ready to do it again. <laughs> We're drinking energy drinks and chai tea now, so <laughs> a little different from last night. 
<laughs> Turns out Jameson before a bottle and a half of red wine isn't the best. <laughs> Unless you're trying to barf all over. And then in that case, you did great. Well, I got to taste the lovely dinner Amy made twice. So, Aww. Do you talk about why his name is Dimebag Daryl? Ah, shoot. I forgot. Are you, I'm, are you joking? I forgot to get into that. Yes, I'm joking. Is it a drug reference? <laughs> Welcome to 2008, Amy. Okay. Okay, so Daryl Lance Abbott, born August 20th. 1966 in Ennis, Texas. Second son to Carolyn and Jerry Abbott. Jerry, his dad, was a country western music producer. Daryl's older brother, Vinnie Paul Abbott, was born two years earlier on March 11th, 1964. Jerry and Carolyn got divorced in 1979 after 17 years of marriage and the brothers went to live with their mother. The family, regardless of the divorce, was relatively happy. So Carolyn, Vinnie, and Daryl ended up living in Arlington, Texas, and Carolyn was always supportive of her son's musical endeavors. Daryl started playing guitar at 12 when he got his first guitar, a Hondo Les Paul knockoff. Les Paul, that guitar was basically what Ace Fraley from Kiss played, as well as a bunch of other people, but Kiss was a huge influence of Daryl's, and as you'll see. So he gets this guitar, and he got a pig nose amp for his birthday when he turned 12. His influences were Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Kiss, and Van Halen, hmm. as, well, as well as others, I'm sure. So he would paint his face like Ace Freely and stand in front of his mirror holding his guitar because he didn't know how to play it yet. <laughs> daydreaming of being in a band. I can't say that I kind of didn't do that. I never was a big kiss guy. Didn't paint my face like that. I had my time in front of the mirror. You remember those viewfinders, the Disney viewfinders? Yes. A lot of my stuff was hand-me-down because I was younger. My only, I only had a couple of viewfinder discs. Like my parents never bought new ones. And it ran. Not surprising. <laughs> randomly, one of them was a kiss concert. <laughs> And they were, like, kind of graphic. Like, I don't think they were made for kids. It's like real long tongue. Yeah, and there was, like, blood in his mouth and stuff. Yeah. So gene. growing up, one of my only, <laughs> one of my only, like, recurring images that I would look at was pictures from a Kiss concert. So I thought they were awesome. I didn't know anything about them at all. So when I heard them, I thought they were awesome because I was like, wow, they're so, they look really cool and they sound really cool. So I actually was a big Kiss fan growing up. Ace Freely was the one with the star on his eye, I believe. Yeah. And he's the guitar player. Oh. The drummer is the cat guy. Yeah. Okay. Chris <laughs> Cross. I don't know. Kringle. <laughs> I don't know all their names except for Gene Simmons and Ace Freely, really. Because I, I haven't uh, stayed a fan for a long time. Paul Stanley. Can't oh, forget. Paul Stanley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He had the curly him. hair, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the great stage banner. <laughs> Back to Daryl standing in front of a mirror, not knowing how to play guitar. His father, Jerry, wanted to teach him some songs, so he wasn't just standing in front of a mirror. And 
he actually learned a few Kiss songs so he could teach Daryl, which is pretty, pretty cool. And Daryl would also learn a few things about guitar from all the country musicians hanging around recording at his father's place. I'm not sure how often he was there because he was living with his mom, but who knows. So his brother Vinny had been playing drums before Daryl got his first guitar. And apparently Daryl tried playing drums too, but Vinny told him he sucked and wouldn't let him play. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time that the brothers jammed together, they played a six-hour version of Smoke on the Water. That sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. One time at my house, a long time ago, they did a... I think a six hour version of tequila. Oh, Jesus. Dun, 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 dun. Six hours? For hour. At least an hour. It was like Cole and Graham. It was all the dudes from like Annihilation Time and stuff. Were they on acid or something? I, they had to have been. I was trying to sleep for, because I had like a class the next day. I think it was after we had like a show at our house and it was the only song that everybody knew how to play. And everybody knew the words, too, because <laughs> it was just tequila. But they probably did that for like an hour. So not exactly, but it just reminded me of it. Good story. <laughs> <laughs> In a 2016 interview, Vinny said he and Daryl were, quote, inseparable once they started playing music together. Very sweet. At 14, Daryl entered a guitar contest that his mom had to accompany him to because he was too young to be there alone. Daryl won the competition, and Dean Zelensky, the founder of Dean Guitars, was one of the judges. And he said Daryl, quote, blew everyone away. Daryl began winning so many contests, he was eventually asked to be a judge so others could have a chance to win. So, in 1981... Vinny was asked by fellow high school classmates Terry Glaze, who played guitar, Tommy Bradford, who played bass, and Donnie Hart, who was the vocalist, to join a band that they were starting called Pantera, Spanish for Panther. <laughs> so Vinny would agree to join only if his brother Daryl could join as well on guitar. Glaze said somewhere they weren't too sure about Daryl at first. They didn't think he was that good at guitar, and he was the scrawny little kid two years younger than them. Two years. But I guess that's a big deal in high school. Mm-hmm. So they didn't let him? No, they did let him. Oh, let okay. Him. Yep. So he joined on uh, second guitar, so that's their gotcha. how Pantera started. No, that one guy, huh? No, that one guy. <laughs> Not yet. Phil? Oh, you just wait. Okay. Their loyalty together, Daryl and Vinny, was so tight that in 1989, Daryl was asked by Dave Mustaine to join Megadeth. No big deal. (laughs) What? Amy's favorite. And Daryl would only join if his brother Vinny could join on drums. Dave Mustaine already had a drummer, Nick Menza, so Daryl declined and stayed with Pantera. So these brothers were a package, and you can't get one without the other. Is Megadeth from Texas as well? No. So he would have, like, potentially had to move or something? Yes. Oh, I see. Okay. I mean, that's understandable. I'm not sure where Dave lives now. Probably Arizona or some. Where, where are they he all was, retired? He was living in San Diego, but I think he sold that property. He just follows Ralph Halford around? I don't know. We could just, like, text Brandon really quick, and he can t- give us his exact location. <laughs> Yeah. 
So Daryl adopted the stage name Diamond Daryl in 1982. That it- reminds me of Gary Glitter. I don't it's just know what the to acro- say that. the ac- you know acronym or not the acronym what's the word I'm looking for alliteration you know mm-hmm. well I mean it's a catchy little name Gary Glitter Diamond Daryl it reminds me of Dustin Diamond too no do you know who Dustin Diamond is is he a wrestler really you don't know <laughs> I don't know Screech from Saved by the Bell that's oh. his real oh, name oh right that yeah yeah that guy is a fucking creep well sorry Screech yeah so. Yeah, he adopted this name, Diamond Daryl, in 82 in reference to the Kiss song, Black Diamond. It's a good song. Is it about skiing? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Because isn't that like Black Diamond, or is that snowboarding? Well, it's the slope of the mountain, but yes, it's skiing or snowboarding, yes. Is it in reference to that? I have no idea. There might be references to it. I don't know the uh, song that well. Oh, okay. (laughs) But I don't, I'm guessing no. Oh, okay. I don't know how many Kiss songs are about skiing. <laughs> well, if it's like skiing. They don't do drugs. They just do chicks. Wait, seriously? Wait, Kiss? Was there, were they like straight edge or something? Kind of, yeah. Oh. Huh. Anyways, this episode's supposed to be about Pantera, damn it. Okay, go for it. The band signed to Metal Magic Records, created by the Abbott's father, Jerry, in 1983 and released their first record, Metal Magic. Diamond Daryl was 16. In 1984 and 85, they released two more records. These three records followed more of a Motley Crue Shout of the Devil feel. Around this time, the Abbott brothers began listening to harder stuff like Metallica and Slayer, and their songwriting reflected this influence change. So Glaze, which I gotta say, not... The toughest band name. Hmm. <laughs> uh, he didn't want to be this, you know, he didn't want to play music that aggressive. And so he. Poser. Left, uh, yeah, total. <laughs> left the band saying he didn't want to be that heavy. Like, who says that? Posers. Fucking loser. So enter Phil and Salmo. Ugh, I can't. 1986, he joins the band and they record Power Metal, which is a good record. Yeah. In 1988 on Metal Magic Records. Which is the dad's record label? He created it. It's ca- kind of like a family the Bathory. Yeah. The Bathory kind of deal. So Phil and Samo joins the band and they record Power Metal. And the music starts to change, be more aggressive, is what I'm trying to say. So in 1990, Cowboys from Hell was released. So Amy's going bleh, bleh. I just, in high school, like, so I went to high school, my first year I think was 99, 98, 98. I graduated in 2002. Everybody who, and this is unfortunate because I'm a metalhead now, but in high school I was very much a punk. And at my That is unfortunate. Well, at my high school you couldn't like both. Like, you had to be one or the other. And all the metalheads were meathead jocks who beat up on the punks, you know? <laughs> and they all wore Pantera shirts. They all loved the Metallica Black Album. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't even know about, like, Kill 'Em All or anything, you know? You grew up too late. I know. So 
everyone was a dickhead who liked Pantera might still be true today. Um, but yeah, they were <laughs> they were meathead jocks and they were really mean. And so I always equated Pantera with like assholes, which I still sort of do too. Not far off. Yeah. And I've just heard a lot of stories about Phil Anselmo at this point in my life. So you like Cowboys from Hell? Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> I I couldn't even name a song from it, so. I, well, that's what I was going to say. For someone hemming and hawing so much about, well, oh, Pantera, yeah, she's never even heard them, I know. so she well, says. Well, and for, I know, like, one song, that walk song, because uh, everyone's, like, You'd have to live parodied it enough at in this point. Hollow Earth to not hear that song. Yeah. At this point. I'm just so, so thinking about Jesse wanting to do it down the oh, aisle. Dude. He doesn't listen to his podcast. It's okay. His wife does though. They dodged a bullet. They yeah. wanted to Jessica, walk you dodged down a bullet on that one. The aisle to walk. <laughs> no, he wanted to. She didn't want to. <laughs> yeah, that's brutal. You you dodged one there, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> so Cowboys from Hell, one of the best album titles ever. Oh, really? <laughs> totally. <laughs> I can't tell if you're being serious or not. It was released in 1990, <laughs> and the album was certified gold in 93 and went platinum in 97. Wow. Yeah. So they're mainstream at they're this They're taking point. over this town. Yeah, they're getting there. And Salmo took a different vocal approach to this album using more of a hardcore yelling vocal style, which cemented their style to the sound many think of when they think of Pantera. Because power metal wasn't like It was that. still more of like a metal Thrashy. metal record. Yeah, metal. Metal metal. More glam. Actual metal. Oh, Jesus. But I um, don't like Pantera, I'm sorry. A lot of people say that Phil Anselmo heard the band X Hoarder and oh, yeah. copied that vocal style. And if you listen to the album Slaughter in the Vatican, which everyone should. By X Hoarder. By X Hoarder. It's like spot on. This dude's voice. Does he ever give credit to that? Uh, maybe if you talk to him. I don't know. I don't read his interviews or anything. Maybe he's uh, talked about it, but mm. probably not. Hmm. So they toured for nearly two years supporting the album. They played around 200 shows. And during this time, Daryl earned a reputation of being a wild man and heavy drinker on the road. So then they released Vulgar Display of Power in 92. And this is the one that... Amy's friends. What? We're all into with Walk and all those. Oh, the jocks at my school? Yeah, your buddies. Ugh. Uh, so that's 1992. And it debuted at 44 on the Billboard 200. It stayed on the charts for 79 weeks. Wow. Yeah. Ranked number 10 on Rolling Stone's what? list of the 100 greatest do metal albums of all time. Do you like that album? Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of, that was the first one I heard, and I think I was probably in high school or around, the, yeah, what was it? 92? 92. Yeah, I graduated in 95. So I wasn't really big into them when they came out just because a lot of people liked them, and I usually yeah. shy away from people or things that people like. I do remember seeing them on like uh, Headbangers Ball and like stuff. MTV. Yeah. And they were heavy for sure. And so this album had a real iconic sound too. It was one of, it was the first album that sounded like that. And they kind of started their own whole genre of like 
probably new metal and all that stuff kind of came from that. That's kind of why I don't like them. I mean, because I without really having without really knowing exactly what they sound like, I just know the bands that had been influenced by them, and I hate those bands too. You know, just like shitty new metal. At this time, Daryl dropped the Diamond stage name and changed it to Dimebag. So now he's Dimebag Daryl, and Anselmo coined the name, joking, joking that Daryl wouldn't accept any amount of weed more than $10 worth. Probably because Texas has strict drug laws, so it was probably ingrained in him, and he didn't want any legal problems if he got caught with it, so. Isn't Dimebag, doesn't that refer more to, like, cocaine, though? I no. always thought so. Oh, it's just a kind of like an... It's like, $10 worth of weed. Oh, or $10 worth of any drug, right? I guess so, but... I always heard Dimebag like being like more like with white powdery stuff. I didn't know that. Well, you just hang out with more sketchy people than I do. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Maybe you should talk to your friends. About Dimebags? <laughs> In 1994, they release Far Beyond Driven, the quote, Heaviest album to ever debut at number one wow. on the Billboard 200 charts. And I've never even heard of this album. I've heard of it, but I've never listened to it. I've heard songs from it, but I don't know it. Mm. But I guess it debuted on number one, which is pretty wow. crazy. Because it is, I mean, as far as being number one on the Billboard charts in the in the U.S., it's a pretty heavy record, I guess. My friends are going to give me a hard time if they listen to this for saying all this sh- pro-Pantera stuff. Because people in my circles... They think Pantera is stupid. Including your wife. <laughs> <laughs> She's in my circle, too. So Dimebag said in 1994, quote, we're into topping ourselves. Most bands release a heavy record, then it gets lighter and lighter. <laughs> yeah, they, they're uh, into power topping themselves. <laughs> so he's saying that you're stuck listening to the first record, wishing and dreaming that they w- would have recorded heavier records, is what he's getting at. And he says, that ain't... <laughs> All right, sorry. My Texas is bad. Don't do not do it. Then. That ain't what we're about. End quote. At this point, Phil Anselmo was drinking heavily and taking lots of painkillers, mm. then eventually heroin, hmm. apparently to combat persistent back pain. He traveled in his own tour bus, and he wouldn't see the other band members until like a half hour before their performances. And he would also drink an entire bottle of wild turkey every night to dull the pain. He would often go on tirades on stage between songs. Not annoying at all. Especially for the band members. (laughs) (laughs) So they released two more records. The Great Southern Trend Kill in 96. And Reinventing the Steel, which I don't think I've ever heard of. So those didn't premiere as high up, I'm assuming, as the Not as high up, no. And... That last one was released in 2000. Wow. And during the recording of Reinventing the Steel, the Abbott's mother, Carolyn, was diagnosed with lung cancer, and she passed away six weeks later. So this had an obvious deep impact on the Abbott brothers. Fast forward to 2001, Pantera were in Ireland getting ready to start a European tour when the 9-11 attacks happened in New York City and Washington, D.C., The tour was canceled because of this, and they returned to Texas. They then agreed to take a short hiatus during this time. Phil Anselmo used this time to work on other side projects and started releasing music with, quote, classics like Super Joint Ritual, (laughs) Down, 
He even played guitar, I think, on one or two Necrophagia records. Hmm. At this t- around this time, bass player Rex Brown quit Pantera during... Yeah, so he called up Daryl, I think, and quit. So the band released a greatest hits record, and that was that for Pantera. Daryl, feeling like everything he's worked so hard for had been, quote, ripped out from under him, decided to start another band. Trying to continue Pantera without Anselmo would be a huge legal headache regarding the, quote, Pantera brand. So Daryl and Vinny started Damage Plan, which I've never heard. Oh, we will. Oh, we will. They recorded in 2003 and were picked up by Elektra Records. So right out of the gates, major label. They released their only record, Newfound Power, in 2004, which debuted at 38 on the Billboard charts and sold 160,000 copies as of December of that year. Supporting the record... Damage Plan was on its Devastation of the Nation tour, playing smaller venues and nightclubs across the country, trying to build a new fan base from the ground up. They planned on recording a second record after the tour. One of the shows on this tour was in Columbus, Ohio, December 8, 2004, at the Al Rosa Villa nightclub. The band had just finished their first song when a deranged loser, Nathan Gale, rushed the stage with a 9mm Beretta pistol. Nathan Gale, born September 11th. Conspiracy? Mm-hmm. 20 years exactly. Shit. Uh, in 1979, in Marysville, Ohio. He graduated Marysville High School in 1998 and served in the Marine Corps from <laughs> February 2002 till November 2003. Not quite the full term, I don't think. The circumstances of his discharge is believed to be a Section 8 case. So a Section 8 is a category of discharge from the U.S. military used for a service member judged mentally unfit for service. Mm. So he was described as an outcast loner who craved friendship. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of sad. It's actually really sad. Yeah, I know. But he's a fucking oogle. Yeah. If you look at pictures of him. Yeah. Well... (laughs) We'll get there. So he took Pantera's breakup as an insult. So he took it super like personal. Directly? Yeah. Yeah, I took it super I think directly. a lot of people did. Like, like, <laughs> That's so weird. Like, how is that insulting to you indi- as an individual? Like, why did you do this to me? I guess so, yeah. It's so weird. Because people, like, when they get, like, manic about a band, it, it's like they claim ownership, you know? Yeah. Anyways, it's a good thing I write shitty music that no one cares about. <laughs> So a former friend of Gail's, Mark Brake, said, quote, when they broke up, I think he felt left out, betrayed. He listened to their albums every day. He was obsessed with Pantera. Ugh. End quote. He also apparently Aww. would pet an imaginary dog and Aww. stare off into space, muttering shit to himself. That's the saddest thing. Amy does that when there's no dogs around. Oh, that's not true. Okay, maybe. I just find real dogs. That's true. Yeah. She's good. She's really good at that. <laughs> he once said, quote, God told me to kill Marilyn Manson. Why didn't he do that then? Marilyn Manson's probably got better security. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he also said that Pantera stole his lyrics. So this guy's fucking cuckoo. Mm. Back to the show. 
Nathan Gale jumps on stage after Damage Plan finished their first song, supposedly yelled something about Dimebag breaking up Pantera, and shot Daryl five wow. times. Twice at point blank in the Isn't head. Isn't it more Phil Anselmo's fault because he was a druggie? Or is it, or do you think it's more dime? Like, whose fault was it that Pantera broke up? I don't know. It seemed like Anselmo had other stuff booked, then their bass player quit. Okay. So it's maybe the bass player? But, um,. They could have found another bass player. I don't know why they wouldn't continue without Anselmo. I think Anselmo... They just had, said it would have been a legal headache right? to continue without him. But if he wanted to be in the band, he would have been in the band. So That's weird. Yeah. I think he also probably walked away from it. I'm not sure what happened. I could text Brad from Impetuous Ritual because he's friends. Like The Portal guys are friends with Phil Anselmo. I thought, really? When... This last summer, I was on tour with Ascended Dead, and we were on tour with Impetuous Ritual. And when we played in Prague, Phil Anselmo's Pantera cover band, basically, was also playing a show in Prague. And after our shows, we were going to meet up. but With he, Phil Anselmo? Yeah. Like, we were texting back and forth and stuff, and he apparently was sick or something. It just fell through, but huh. I could have asked him. Ah. Oh. This episode would have been so much better. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he jumps on stage and he fucking shoots Dimebag Daryl five times, twice point blank in the head, killing him. Dang. And Daryl Abbott was only 38. Three other people were killed in the attack. Nathan Bray, 23, he jumped on stage to try to assist Dimebag when he was shot. Oh, that's sad. Club employee Aaron Hawk, 29, and Damage Plan Security Guard Jeff Mayhem Thompson, 40. That's sad. Those are I know. Like yeah, people, the whole thing is yeah. fucking, it sucks, man. Yeah. The band's drum tech, John Cat Brooks, and the tour manager, Chris Paluska, were also injured. So according to police, Gale fired 15 shots and reloaded once. Staff and concertgoers that tried to intervene were shot at. Jesus. Yep. So this guy, I mean, he was only a Marine for like, a year or something. Oh, but, yeah, I forgot he had but he, marine yeah, training. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, went through basic. Yeah. Yep. So Gail took tour manager Chris Paluska hostage, placing him in a headlock and pointing a gun to his head. When Paluska moved slightly, Colum <gasps> Columbus police officer James D. Niggemeyer, the Whoa, first... careful. I didn't name I know. <laughs> I'm just saying careful. Um, <laughs> tread lightly. <laughs> He was the first officer on the scene, so the tour manager moves slightly, and this dude, we'll just call him James D., he fucking shoots Nathan Gale in the face with a police-issued 12-gauge shotgun. Dang. Blowing Gale's head off. So that's the, that's the guy who took everyone like hostage, basically. The he, Marine. Yeah. The crazy guy. Yeah, he's the only shooter. Okay. So this cop, he was the first, I don't know how, like, I mean, once it happened, I'm not sure how. I bet there was a like, lot of cops at the show. Just I hanging just, out with shotguns? But I mean, like, Pantera and Damage Plan seem like a band that cops would like. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's just a, a Terminator on its night off. Yeah. Just hanging out with in his trench coat and shotgun. Yeah, it's just weird. Maybe it was like in his car or something. I don't know. I think he was responding to a call. Okay. But. I just want to imagine he was there as like a concert goer. I wonder if that thing had slugs in it or buckshot. Like, cause he had a hostage. It, yeah. So shooting a 12 gauge. It had to have a slug in it then. 
Because a buckshot would have gotten, it would have sprayed. Yeah, it probably wouldn't have blown his head off. Oh, it would have blown his head off if for sure. Hmm. Or we could do some experiments I mean, in the backyard. He, it would have filled his head with lead. We can get some pumpkins and shoot them in the backyard. We could do that, <laughs> right? Here in town. Totally legal. <laughs> um, so during the rampage, nurse and concert goer Mindy Reese went to the aid of Daryl, administering CPR until paramedics arrived. And I also mentioned Nathan Bray was also trying to help Abbott when he was shot and killed. Daryl Abbott was pronounced dead at the scene. I mean, he took two to the head, point blank, so fucking sad. So Dimebag Daryl Abbott was buried at the Moore Memorial Garden Cemetery in Arlington, Texas, alongside his mother, Carolyn. Thousands attended his public memorial. Eddie Van Halen, Zach Wilde, and Jerry Cantrell were in attendance, just to name a few celebs. So Gene Simmons from Kiss donated a Kiss casket. Uh, well, that's for the burial. Well, that was his favorite band. Yeah, yeah. So it's a huge gesture. I guess the part that <laughs> I, the thing that kind of rubs me is like the Kiss casket. So it's the Kiss logo and then casket with a K. And it's like this whole <laughs> what? marketing thing. Like, fucking A, Kiss. So yeah, he gets, he gets this Kiss casket to be buried in. A few weeks prior to all this, Daryl had called Eddie Van Halen about getting one of his Bumblebee recreation guitars that Charvel were starting to make. So the Bumblebee guitar was that iconic yellow and black guitar that he used on a couple of the records. I can't remember which ones exactly right now, but mm-hmm. the Charvel guitars were like putting these back into production and Daryl called Eddie Van Halen to see about getting one. At the funeral, Eddie said, quote, Dime was an original and only an original deserves an original. So to that and he took the original Bumblebee guitar and put it in the coffin next to Daryl. Mm. Yeah. And the shooting actually occurred on the 24th anniversary of John Lennon's murder. <laughs> which, which you don't care about. No. But fun trivia. There you go. So in May of 2005, Officer James D. <laughs> testified before the Franklin <laughs> Court Grand Jury a routine practice there for police shootings, and they did not indict James D. Just so you guys know, his last name is spelled N-I-G-G-E-M-E-Y-E-R. That's why we're not saying it, because it's way too close. So he actually receives a commendation for his outstanding police work in time of crisis. <laughs> You're Just like, blowing his head off. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice work. Nice aiming, kid. Um, change your last name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Um, so there were possibly lawsuits against the nightclub that the Abbott family started to pursue, claiming security at the club wasn't prepared to deal with a situation like that. But yeah, which clubs are really? Yeah. Um, I mean, I they, don't see. I what 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 city was it in again? It is Columbus, Ohio. I would think that maybe Texas would be ready for it because probably everybody's armed to the nines. Yeah. I mean, the Roseland had metal detectors you had to go through before. Remember? Yeah. In Portland. Yeah. Remember Portland? No. I I don't. Yeah. Screw them. No, I miss Portland. (laughs) But all their venues are like, well, every venue in the world is closed right now, so it doesn't matter. Yep. No more fucking live shows. I don't think any of these lawsuits went anywhere. So Daryl's older brother and best friend, 
Vinnie Paul died in his Las Vegas home June 22nd, 2018 of heart disease. And he was buried alongside his brother and mother in a kiss casket in Arlington, Texas. That's my report on <laughs> Dimebag Daryl. Any final thoughts? You know, I'm not the biggest Pantera fan or anything. Uh, I think he was an awesome guitar player. Iconic as fuck, too. He definitely created his own sound. He's, you know, just an iconic figure in metal and guitar playing. And it's fucking sad that some fucking nutter fucking just jumps on stage and fucking shoots him. Yeah, and it does kind of make you... I mean, unfortunately, I've heard just way too many stories about people being discharged from the military for, like, you know, mental stuff. Yeah. And then not receiving services when they get home. Like, that should be fairly mandatory. They should be dropped off on an island far away No, no, no. No, they should get mandatory counseling and therapy until, like, they're deemed okay. Because, I mean, I get it. Like, you should have higher standards for the military because you're arming them to the T's and having them go out and fight. But at the same time, if you can't make it in the military mentally, what makes you think that civilian life is going to be easy? Because a lot of people have been... The concept of training crazy people how to kill (laughs) doesn't resonate well. So essentially you're training a crazy person how to kill and then you're saying, oh, you're too crazy and then releasing them. Like, I want to know for the people who aren't mentally well that are trained to kill, what are we doing for them when they come back to civilian life? Word. That's 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 what I think it brings up, you know, yeah. is brought up in this as well. Because like there's so many people that are ex-military that went on to do crime and it has nothing to, I don't think it has anything directly to do with the military. I think it speaks more to their mental mindset, but you've just given them a bunch of skills. Yeah. uh, That's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people probably leave the military and realize. Yeah, disgruntled. (laughs) Totally. Realizing how fucked the government is. Yeah. I had a student, I had a Marine in my writing class last term. And he fucking hated the government. And he had, a, I mean, he didn't, he very, he was very critical of the government. I, I, I don't think he hated it, but you know. What's not to fucking hate? Luckily, he was doing something in his life. He was going to get a college degree and do something else. Like, so, and, but the thing is, he admittedly went to a lot of counseling and stuff and like worked really fucking hard in class. He got the highest grade in class by far, you know. So I don't know. That's obviously a success story, but it's just like, what are we doing for people returning from service in terms of like mandatory? I I know it's a free country and all, and like you should be allowed to do what you want to do. But I also think there should be some kind of mandatory counseling. There might be. I don't know. But it's it kind of sounds like in this case there wasn't, unfortunately. And also, how was he able to get a gun if he was like discharged from the military for being mentally unstable? Maybe don't issue Come him on. a gun. Well, yeah, it does, it's not necessarily legal, but... Anyone can get a gun. I know, unfortunately. You could print a gun. Now you could print a gun. Yeah, and there's already been murders uh, related to 3D printing of guns. Unfortunately, the very first case of a, of a gun being 3D printed and used in a murder, man, if you look up that couple's fucking bug shots, they're fucking terrifying looking. <laughs> They both have the worst face tattoos ever. Oh, well, face tattoos are a sign of higher intelligence. Yeah, it's like a 16-year-old girl and like her 22-year-old boyfriend or something. And they look like such fucking losers. It's not so bad if every, if like the rest of the body's tattooed, but these people that have like pretty much no tattoos on anything else and then like a huge neck or face tattoo, it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. 
that used to be like a taboo thing. Like you couldn't get that tattooed. You have to like kind of pay your dues. Yeah. To get like your hands tattoo done. Tattoo culture. Or, yeah. Yeah. If you're doing it in your garage without a light, you know, and you just yeah. will say yes to anyone. Fucked up on scissor. So we're going to move on to our second story for today, which is also a sad murder, but completely different. <laughs> Slightly different genre. Yeah. yeah. Sam Cooke. So for those of you who don't know who Sam Cooke is, that's weird because he's real big. Uh, you'll, you probably do. I'm going to name some of his songs and albums and you'll be like, oh, yeah, that guy. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> So I just want to start off by saying that I got the majority of my research and even a lot of the timeline from the Netflix documentary or docuseries called Remastered. And I believe the episode is titled The, the Two Killings of Sam Cooke. If you want to watch it, it's amazing. The, the people that they got in the interview is like super impressive. So it's if you just look up Sam Cooke on Netflix, it's literally the only thing on there. I also got a bunch of information from a couple of other articles, one by Tom Mullins called Sam Cooke's Rosa Parks Moment, when I talk about some of his kind of like activisty work and um, some others I'll probably reference throughout. Sam Cooke, often called the father of modern soul, was born in Mississippi in 1931, only about 65 years from the passing of the Emancipation Proclamation. The aftermath of slavery could easily still be felt in the South. Sam Cooke says, My great-grandmother was a slave in Mississippi. She had no education. Neither did my father. He was a self-made man. But he saw the disadvantages to the Negro child in the South. So he went to the North to Chicago. And in many ways, I'm very much like him. He has the intense drive that I've got. So the family did relocate to Chicago. And in Chicago, Sam became the lead singer to the very popular gospel group called the Soul Stirrers who were wildly popular both inside and outside of the church. But he did want to make the leap to non-gospel mainstream music with his first song, Lovable. I think he just took... Oh, that was He the took one. like a like a religious song that was like... A gospel like, song. He just changed like the title. Yeah, and he used... Yeah, it was like something about... It wasn't huggable. Like, he wasn't talking about hugging Jesus Christ, but it was something Jesus Christ. High-fiving. Yeah, it was something-able. Like, love. I think it may have been lovable still, like how Jesus Christ is lovable, but he just changed it into a romance song. He used the same, like, melody and everything, but he just changed it to be more of, like, a love song between humans, you know, not between God and human. <laughs> yeah, so his first hit song was called Lovable, and he actually was really nervous about making that leap between gospel and mainstream. So he actually changed his name. He released it as Dale Cook. 
hoping that if things didn't work out, he could kind of just jump back into gospel music because the Soulsters were wildly popular and famous putting out records and stuff, and he was making money with them. So he wanted to be able to jump back out in case it didn't work out because a lot of people said you can't have one foot in gospel music and one foot in, quote unquote, the devil's music, you know. Fair enough. It did well. And so he started using his real name, but he wanted to add a little flair to it. So instead of spelling it Cook, C-O-O-K, he added an E on the end. Edgy. In 1957, Cook released his Cookie, (laughs) uh, released his debut hit single, You Send Me. So that's probably the one that a lot of people know. It was a huge commercial success, becoming number one on the Billboard's Rhythm and Blues records chart and the Billboard Top 100 or Hot 100. He became the second best-selling musical artist at that time, second only to Elvis, which he actually met Elvis and stuff. Like Elvis liked him, they were buds. His voice is crazy. Yeah, his voice is beautiful. Yep. He and other artists would tour the South in what was called the Chitlin Circuit. And it's really cool. This part of the documentary where they talk about the Chitlin Circuit, this is one of the only parts where um, Quincy Jones is interviewed and he talks about the Chitlin Circuit. So the info I'm getting from this is from Quincy Jones from the documentary. Being that it's the 50s, black people were very much experiencing the heavy yoke of Jim Crow era racial segregation. Sam Cooke was not okay with this. He hated that he would have to entertain white people and then not have anywhere to stay or eat at afterwards because there were certain places where just black people were not allowed and there were, you know, they were white only spaces. So they would have to like drive to a different city to like spend the night or something, you know? Yeah, it's fucked up. Like I was saying, Quincy Jones in the documentary, he said that there were times and I think he's speaking more from personal experience. I don't think this happened to Sam Cooke. But Quincy Jones was saying that sometimes the only places they would have to stay were in mortuaries. Right. Yeah, and that they would set up cots next to the coffins, like with dead people in them. And so they would literally, the only place they could sleep was with dead people. Sign me up for a tour like that. It's <laughs> fucking crazy. This on top of other racial injustices really began to gnaw away at Sam Cooke. In 1955, in Money, Mississippi, Emmett Till was murdered by white men for allegedly whistling at a white woman, which if you did not know about, I would say three to five years ago, it was super recent. She came out and said pretty much because she's about to die because she's fucking old at this point. She said that it did not happen. So fucked up. I know. So Emmett Till was killed for absolutely no reason. No one was ever convicted for his crimes. Like the white men were actually justified by the courts. Because remember, this fucking Mississippi in the 50s, you know. Friends of Cook's recall that this event rattled him to the core. He was set to play You Send Me on the Dick Clark American Bandstand TV show in 1957 or 1958. I actually had conflicting dates on that. But a real incredible threat of death and or violence from the KKK loomed. Most people wanted him to cancel. Cook was the only black performer on the concert bill and the National Guard had to be called in amongst threats of the Ku Klux Klan. The National Guard was there, Dick Clark said, but some people had already warned us that many of them were Klan's members themselves. So being protected by the National Guard wasn't like this 100% assurance that things were going to be okay. From a Washington Examiner article, Clark says it was Cook who enlightened him to America's racism. 
quote, things that as a white man I had never experienced. You knew that people of color face prejudice every day of their lives, but Sam was the first person to tell me about it in, a pers- in personal terms, end quote. In 1958, Cook married his second wife, which they didn't talk about. The film is very much about like his musical career and not really his personal life, but his personal life is important in understanding how he died and what kind of person he was because he wasn't like a perfect angel. He may have been like this gospel singer and very like spiritual soul person, right? But he he was not like the best husband or like any angel by any means. So he married his second wife who happened to be his high school sweetheart named Barbara Campbell in Chicago, they had three children. Cook also fathered at least three other children out of wedlock. And I did read in another article, I read in another article I found from Al Hunter's The Death of Sam Cook, part two. It was like like a community newspaper, but it actually had a lot of really, really great information in it. He said in his article, I believe that the three children he had out of wedlock were all born in one week. Wow. Yeah, just do the math on that. You know what I mean? So he was getting around. And this, and all of that was when he was married, too. Double wow. Yeah. He was having children with his wife and children simultaneously. Like, he must have had, like, three, three crazy nights in a row, you know? Like, they were very, very, very close to one another. But, again, that's kind of gossipy, so I don't want to go down that too much. Another significant event in terms of racial and musical history in the U.S. was the night that Jesse Belvin played the first concert to an integrated audience in the history of Little Rock, Arkansas. It was interrupted twice by white people shouting racial slurs and urging white teens in the audience to leave the show then. There had been several death threats on Belvin before the concert, which led many people to speculate that there was room to tamper with his car before the concert. When Belvin and his family were driving home or to a hotel after the concert, they were involved in a head-on collision, and his entire family and himself were killed. This, too, rattled Sam Cooke and much of the black community. Even though it was, like, seen as an accident, people believed that his wheels had been tampered with before the accident, which actually caused the accident, and that it was the result of racist white people wanting to keep integration from happening in the South. Sam Cooke began boycotting segregated shows, noting that it felt wrong to have black people in the back and balcony and not allowed up front. And then some other things that kind of fueled his activism or civil rights, like kind of just drive inside of him to want to do other things other than just, you know, entertaining to white audiences is that his one of his favorite authors was James Baldwin, which I wanted to include because James Baldwin is one of my favorite authors as well. And if you haven't read any of his stuff, I highly recommend him. Just everything. I always teach the short story. It's kind of a long short story called Sonny's Blues. And then I know that there was a documentary released about James Baldwin within the last couple of years called I Am Not Your Negro, which is a quote he said in, I think, multiple interviews. And I think he alluded to it. He may have even it may have even been like it was going to be the title of something he was working on before he died. Another thing about Sam Cooke is that he refused to process his hair or wave it with like a relaxer. A lot of people did that during that time and a lot of people still do it now. Malcolm X did it. It was just, it was basically to make your hair white-like and flowy. 
and not like Afro-y. And so he decided at a certain point that he wasn't going to relax his hair anymore and he wanted to just have a natural fro. And once he started doing that, he kind of created a trend for a lot of people and people stopped relaxing their hair. I didn't know that. Also during this time, Sam Cooke and Muhammad Ali, which was then Cassius Clay, they struck up this very historical friendship and made a record together, which maybe will open up or close out with the song. It, it's so cute. I listened to other. It's yeah, we'll so it ridiculous. Up. The record is actually called I Am The Greatest. And I think I think they made it after he probably became the heavyweight. Yeah, champion I wonder who came up with that title. But man, every song, first off, you know, this came out in like what, like the late 50s or early 60s. He's kind of rapping like he may be the first rapper, you know, (laughs) but he just keeps like he makes there's like a call and response thing going on, almost like, you know, uh, church like. And he keeps asking like the audience, like, who's the greatest? And they're like, you're the greatest. Like, it's really funny. He just really wanted to make an album celebrating how awesome he was. <laughs> I, I I really like Muhammad Ali. I think he's a badass. Well, yeah. They performed The Gang's All Here, which is one of the tracks on the record, on national television. And one of the people in the documentary, Dr. Mark Anthony Neal, who is a professor of black studies at Duke, said that seeing their close friendship and them perform together, quote, disturbed perceptions of black masculinity. Like they were sweet to each other and loving and had their arms around each other. And it was so cute and they were harmonizing. And it was just like this really beautiful moment on national television to see these two very strong, powerful black men be sweet with one another. At this time, Cassius Clay was also being quietly mentored by the late Malcolm X. Around this time, Sam Cooke started a publishing group called CAGS, K-A-G-S, and SAR records with J.W. Alexander and concentrated just on black artists. They both believed that the artists were just as important as the owners and that they should be paid in such a way, which is something that Cook had never experienced himself with RCA records who were just fucking him royally. For the record, I've never experienced that either. In case anybody's listening. (laughs) So his CPA, Alan Klein, who I believe who is still alive and he owns like the rights to most of Sam Cooke's stuff with Abco Records, his CPA encouraged Cook and to to look into RCA Records finances to see he was like, dude, you're not he was getting paid like $50 for a song or something that was like making the record company millions, you know. And so basically Alan Klein got Sam Cooke to authorize an audit and got him like a shit ton of money. And so they started this very close friendship, which mm. Alan Klein ends up fucking over Sam Cooke in the end, right before his death, which we'll Judas. talk about some more. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Around this time in 1963, so I'm trying to move somewhat chronologically here, Bob Dylan came out with the song Blowing in the Wind, which was somewhat upsetting to Cooke. And Cooke actually covered it. I very much like Cooke's cover of it much better. And it ended up being like this song of like the civil rights movement, which it's very counterproductive, I think, in Sam Cooke's eyes and a lot of other black artists eyes to have 
like the song of the resistance being the song that some, you know, white dude is writing, you know, which I get like he was very, very important in the civil rights, like music and art, the stuff being produced at the time. But it was problematic. And Sam Cooke knew this. And so he was like, why am I fucking making songs like so at this point, he had come out with You Send Me. He also came out with that song, What a Wonderful World This Would Be. Right. And Twisting the Night Away. And then Cupid. Cupid. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And Chain Gang, which Chain Gang was, it was actually supposed to be somewhat of like a critical song about chain gangs, like after slavery ended and um, there was like indentured servitude and stuff. Mm -hmm. But it ended up being like fairly comical looking because the image that they used, and you can see this in the documentary, it's like him in a cartoonish like black and white striped outfit with his two white music producer friends as well. And they're all chained together. And so it looks comical, like it doesn't look critical. Yeah. Well, I think at the time they didn't want to stir. Exactly. And so, again, all of this stuff is being put out through RCA records. And so it's being kind of like whitewashed for the masses, you know, because this guy is second only to Elvis Presley pretty much at the time. So he was this goldmine and they weren't about to let him become like radical. Yeah. But when Blowing in the Wind came out, he loved it so much that he covered it and he was just like, it's wrong that... I can't make a song that means this much to my people and that this white dude can do a better job of it than I can. So that's when he started writing A Change Is Gonna Come. Which blows it away. Yeah, it's fucking amazing. It's I don't know if you heard this on the documentary. It never came out while he was alive. He he performed it a few times, but it it came out 11 days after he died, as yeah. released as a single. Which makes it the impact stronger i think yeah also by this time he had also become friends with jim brown who was an nfl player i don't i don't know what position they he was. play yeah yeah <laughs> and malcolm x you may have heard of that guy i think so so to keep with the timeline there's a little bit of an aside that i want to mention before i move on because it does kind of become relevant in his death In 1963, one of Sam Cooke's youngest kids, Vincent, he drowned in a pool while his wife was watching the kids and he was at work. And this event obviously heavily affected him. And he secretly, maybe not secretly, blamed it on his wife. And right after Vincent's death, he immediately went on tour and started cheating on his wife, like, pretty hardcore. Like, I think before it was fairly secret. Like, he was definitely cheating on his wife prior to this. Yeah. But at this point, I don't think he fucking cared about, like, sneaking around at all. Sounds like it. Yeah. He just was openly cheating on his wife. Yeah, because he fucking hated her for killing his kid, basically. When Muhammad Ali became the heavyweight champion of the world in 1964, he immediately wanted to give the spotlight to his best friend, Sam Cooke, letting everyone know that Sam Cooke was the greatest rock and roll singer of all time. It's really cute. They show it in the documentary Mm, where he's winning the heavyweight champion of the world title. And he immediately is trying to, like, turn the microphone and cameras over to Sam Cooke being like, look, 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 this is my best friend. And it's kind of crazy at that fight, you know, front row and center is Malcolm X and Sam Cooke and Jim Brown. Like, these four were, like, this powerhouse. Yeah, for sure. 
seen this powerhouse of black, powerful, super intellectual, radical men probably made J. Edgar Hoover want to shit his pants. And he like immediately got the FBI to start surveilling him. I'm sure at this point, Malcolm X had already been surveilled for years at this point. Around this time is when Cassius Clay officially changed his name to let go of his slave name and embrace his chosen Muslim name, which was Muhammad Ali. A year after this change, Malcolm X and Sam Cooke would be dead. Sam Cooke's dream of writing important music came true by writing A Change Is Gonna Come. But originally, the second verse was considered too radical about the Jim Crow South, and actually the record company omitted it from the original single being released. It was around this time that Cook wanted to combine forces because I think he was just getting like pretty done with RCA. RCA could give him the distribution he wanted, but he just was kind of done with them because they were whitewashing the things that he cared about, you know. So it was about this time that he started to have the idea of combining forces with other kind of like megastars. I think they said um, James Brown was one of them that he wanted to work with. He wanted to combine forces and money with other strong black musical artists to begin a huge record company that could actually compete with the white-owned ones. He would get visits from the mob telling him to cut it out, and Cook would respond by telling them to get lost. And he would never make anyone leave the room. They'd be like, you need everyone to leave. He's like, "If anything you can say in front of me, you can say in front of my brothers, you know? Hmm. And even Sammy Davis Jr. called him up and said, yo, drop it. Do what the mob tells you to do because you're going to be in some fucking serious trouble. And Cook ignored him, too. He said, I'll be fine. So a lot of those things are kind of mounting up to his death, right? Yeah, sounds like it. And another thing I want to point out, too, is that he may have not been the kind of like obvious outspoken activist that like Malcolm X and stuff was. But that made him no less of an activist in terms of like business. He wanted to be just as strong and powerful and have as much equity as other white-owned labels. He wanted to have power in the music and business world like no other black man had before. So that was how he kind of used his activism was to compete in the business world because he felt like that he needed to kind of break that glass ceiling. Number on the night of December 10th, 1964, with a whole bunch of money in his pocket, some say it was around $5,000, which will which is about $42,000 today. So that's how much money he had in his pocket. He had been flashing it around to his friends at this restaurant called Martoni's. He met a cute Asian girl, 22 years old, named... Now, in the documentary, they were referring to her as Lisa Boyer, but most everywhere on the internet refers to her as Elisa Boyer. And they began talking his friends left. They said, you know, oh, you know, we're going to leave them. Something's definitely happening there. So they left the restaurant around 1 a.m. in Sam's brand new red Ferrari and headed to a Subtle. nightclub. Yeah, I know. So he had $5,000 in his pocket. Some people say it was only 1000 
because he had gone to like a safety deposit box and he had taken out 5,000, but he only had 1,000 on him or something. I don't know. There's some kind of discrepancy, but he had a shit ton of money in his pocket. Even $1,000 in your pocket today is a lot to be flashing around, you know? So here he is. He has got either a grand or five grand worth of money in his pocket. He's got this red Ferrari and this young Asian girl, and they head to a nightclub called PJ's. At the club, Sam got into a heated argument with some guy who was hitting on her. She asked Sam to take her home, and they left at 2 a.m. According to Boyer, Sam raced down Santa Monica and, against her protests, pulled onto the freeway. She later told police that she asked again to be taken home, but Sam said, Don't worry now. I just want to go for a little ride. He stroked her hair and told her how pretty she was. They exited the freeway at Figueroa Street near LAX. Boyer asked again to be taken home, but Sam drove straight to the Hacienda Motel. He got out of the car and walked up to a glass partition at the manager's office while Boyer remained in the car. He registered under his own name with the clerk, Bertha Franklin. Franklin eyed Boyer in the car and told Sam that he'd have to sign in as Mr. and Mrs. And he dragged me into that room. I started talking very loudly, and I told him, please take me home. He latched the night latch on, and um, he pushed me on the bed. And he says, well, we're just going to talk. I knew that he was about to rape me. So while he was in the bathroom, I picked up my clothes, my shoes, and my handbag. I opened the latch, and I ran out. So she grabs his pants and runs out. She grabs his pants. What about her pants? I think she still has her clothes on at this point. I mean, I don't think that they ever performed any kind of sexual act. So also during the documentary, you can see Sam Cooke's wife sitting there being like, no, this did not happen, right? In the documentary, they, they thought that he, she actually threw the pants down to somebody down in the street or threw, threw it out of the window. But most accounts say that she ran out with the pants hmm. and that he ran after her and started pounding on the door of the motel night manager, Bertha Franklin, to see if his lady friend was inside with her. Ms. Franklin claims that he was twisting her arms and she fought back by shooting him 40 times with a pistol. 40? I think it was maybe 30. I think I may have typed that wrong. So 30 30 to 40 times. And when the police asked her, like, are you sure you shot him? She said, he said, lady, you shot me. She's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure he shot him because that's what he said. Apparently, Uh. there's another documentary about Sam Cooke, more specifically about his death, not about his life, called Lady, You Shot Me. So that was very much part of the headline was that this lady shot him. I also heard... He didn't say, like, Lady, You Shot Me 30 times. (laughs) No, I don't think he could. You know, what's crazy is that I believe that Bertha Franklin, because her name kind of got raked across the coals a bit, you know, because she killed one of the most influential black artists right. of the time period, you know. She actually was able to sue his family for like $30,000 in like slander and libel or defamation or whatever. What's, and she she won. But what's the libel? She did shoot him. I guess people were saying that she was hired by like Alan Klein or like RCA or something, saying uh, that she was like a contract killer, which... I don't believe in that conspiracy necessarily. I believe in something else, which we'll talk about. Pants stealing overkiller. (laughs) 
Many people couldn't believe that this story was real. They thought that he was a threat to both the music industry and the business world. This was a way to do away with him. Even Elvis Presley came out saying that he thought Cook was getting too influential in the industry and was taken down as a result. But here's the deal. I didn't mention, and again, I'm going to use verbiage from the 50s and 60s here. They call her hooker in a lot of articles, which I think is a fun word for a prostitute, but I know it's not a nice word. And I know that the modern day way of saying it is sex worker. And I know that that is more credible and stuff, but I still, I think hooker is a hilarious word. A month after he was killed, she was arrested at that same hotel for hooking. Hmm. There's a really good chance that she actually went up to Sam Cooke and was had seen the money that he had and was like, oh, this is an easy target. She may have not even known who he was. That seems very plausible. And they believe that maybe she passed the pants on to her pimp because when she was taken by police to be questioned after the murder, she only had $20 in her pocket or $20 in her purse. She didn't have the 5K because they think they did sort of look into it being like this armed robbery-ish kind of thing, but she didn't have any of the money on her. And so a lot of people like she passed it off to her pimp because clearly this girl was a hooker because less than a, like a month, exactly a month later, you know, you can find mug shots of her online for prostituting herself in Hollywood. She just has a car full of pants. Yeah. It is also believed that Franklin, remember Bertha Franklin, the one who shot him, had some kind of connection as well. Oh, so the hooker didn't shoot him? No, the Bertha Franklin did, but oh. they think that the hooker set it up. And I, maybe we should just call her Lisa. <laughs> and they, in the documentary, they actually meant, they said that Bertha Franklin may have been some kind of pimptress. <laughs> which I thought was a funny word. Pimptress. And that she did have a record as well. So both of these women had records. In the end, it was ruled a justifiable homicide, even though there was never a thorough investigation done on the part of the LAPD. And in the documentary, it also stated that when they like basically went to inquire about the investigation, what what the word on the street was that the policemen are like, why look it into it any further? It's just another N-word dead on the street. Like, we like who cares? Yeah. So I did want to look to see what else like Elisa Boyer ended up doing after that. And the only place I could really find good information was from that article by Al Hunter from the Weekly View community newspaper, which I really, really liked. And he wrote a two-part article on the death of Sam Cooke. And this was information I got about her. He said, Elisa Boyer continued to rack up... Elisa Boyer continued to rack up a long rap sheet, including multiple aliases. She had a reputation in the underground as a role artist. Posing as a prostitute, she would lure a John into a motel. The minute he stepped out of the room or fell asleep after the act, she would then rob him and then take his clothes so that he would be less inclined to pursue her. It's like Cardi B. Yeah. <laughs> I think she drugged them, though. I guess that's a little different. Yeah. In 1979, Elisa Boyer was found guilty of second-degree murder in the death of her boyfriend. She is still in jail today, serving a 25-to-life sentence for that crime. I also read somewhere else that she's living in Hawaii. So she's still alive. And then Bertha Franklin lived until 1989. She was much older than Elisa Boyer. So she, she lived to be in her 80s, and she passed away in the late 80s. 
The ripples of his death could be felt all over for a very long time. There were huge losses to the black community during this time, including Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and then later Martin Luther King Jr. They were all executed. Uh, Not executed, but just um, as sad and a loss for the black community, Langston Hughes also passed away during this time. Events like these racked up on top of one another, and for one week in August of 1965, the Watts riots raged in a Los Angeles neighborhood, killing 34 people and injuring over 1,000. An edited version of A Change is Gonna Come was released by RCA 11 days after Cook's death, and the RCA one, it doesn't include the the second verse, which was seen as maybe too radical or whatever. And it was fully released, I think, with an entire album in 1965. So again, a change is going to come. It's so sad. It's like this almost like eulogy that lives, you know, on today. But it was never released in his lifetime. I just wanted to end with a quote from Renee Graham, who is an associate editor and columnist for the Boston Globe. She said, It is a shame of this nation that that song is still relevant. So that's the death of Sam Cooke. Yeah. God, it still is relevant. Yeah. And so one of the reasons (laughs) some change is coming right now after this COVID bullshit. Yeah. But one of the reasons I kind of like bring up the extramarital relationships and the children out of wedlock and him being a little bit of a womanizer is like it's not totally out of the realm of possibility that he hit on this girl and brought her back to his hotel room. What I find to not be credible, and most of his friends as well would say, is that he was not trying to rape her. It See, seems, why would he? he it would. seems very, I know, he doesn't need to rape anyone. He could have had anybody he wanted. Yep. He's very attractive and ready to fuck. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, and like, she was super cute and everything, but she was a fucking hooker. She didn't look cute to me. I thought she was really cute. No. Really? Well, she's Japanese. So? Okay. I think she's Japanese. I'm not actually 100% sure. She looks Japanese. She looks Korean. (laughs) Don't say that. My mom doesn't (laughs) listen to this podcast. She doesn't need to, you don't need to placate her. It's not sketchy that he picked up some chick and brought her back to his hotel room. What's sketchy is that she's saying he was trying to rape her. Yeah. And then Bertha Franklin shooting him for being like, I I just, a lot of the stuff after she runs out of the room, fucking, I probably would shake a night manager too if I thought some chick stole $40,000 from me. You know what I mean? I'd be like, where, where, do you see where that fucking chick went? And she just said, I felt threatened, and so I felt like I had to shoot him. And 30 so, times. I know, and that's the part where I am thinking that somewhere in her mind, she's thinking, like, I don't get paid unless this guy is dead, and that's why I'm going to fucking make sure he's dead. Because I don't know what kind of fucking magazine she's got on her gun, but I'm pretty sure she had to reload. Yeah, unless it's like a Tommy gun with one of those fucking drums on it. <laughs> yeah. Or she has, like, one of those extendos, you know, on her, like, Glock or something. But I'm pretty sure she was using, like, some kind of revolver. I don't think they had those back then. No, I don't think they did. Which means that, like, it feels like a mob hit. I don't know if it was RCA. I don't know if it was Alan Klein. Did they say if all the bullets came from the same gun? No. But there's a good chance that maybe, maybe it, it was like Maybe it was, like, that part in RoboCop in the beginning where they shoot Murphy before he is actually <laughs> RoboCop. You know, they line up oh, and they just blast. The yeah. I, 
30 shots. That's a lot. I mean, that that right there is sketchy as fuck because if you genuinely think somebody's coming after you and you've disarmed them, unless she was looking to kill him specifically, why would she keep shooting? Maybe she shoots guns like you do. (laughs) It's just... That was an AK, okay? And that's very Just from the hip and... But I mean, that... If you see her coming with an AK, duck. <laughs> I'm not a very good shot, so you probably don't duck. <laughs> but that's where it feels like this is a contract killing. Like, I don't think she was a fucking... I don't think she was like a contract killer. She was the bait. But she wasn't... It, it was... They just needed somebody to kill him. And I think that they offered... Whoever they is, I think that somebody offered her money to kill him. And I think that his death is kind of not dissimilar to a lot of like strong black leaders being executed at the time. You know, so do you think it was the hooker's idea to go to this specific hotel? Yes. And that's why. So we didn't really talk about it, but her calling from that telephone booth like this is after she ran out. She made that 911 call to be picked up and to start her basically alibi. Right. And I, I think that they're on cahoots with one another. I think, I think that somebody offered the hooker or Bertha Franklin. I shouldn't say hooker. I feel bad saying that now. No, she's a fucking criminal. Are there any CIA ties or links? No, I think that this is either RCA, Alan Klein, who ended up fucking owning all of Sam Cooke's shit. Like, that weekend, this, I didn't add this, that weekend, he was going to fire Sam Klein because he had, he was, like, making this deal with the record company and he thought he was going to be getting all this money and he was transferring over his name. But when he, he said, in the documentary, they said that he was actually sick and so he had some time in bed to go over the paperwork and realized that the paperwork actually made Klein the owner of the record company and not Sam. And he would get the majority of the money coming in. And so he was plan. he got pissed. Uh-huh. And so he was planning on firing Klein. And so I think that he had talked about it with mutual friends being like, I'm going to fire that fucker. Like he's stealing money from me or he thinks I'm fucking stupid and I'm not going to read the contract, right. you know? And so I think that there's a really good chance that Sam Klein had something to do with it. RCA had something to do with it. And, you know, the FBI, I don't know about the CIA. I don't even know if the CIA existed at that point. What year was it? 64. I think the CIA was definitely, well, CIA was definitely around when JFK was shot. And that was Vietnam. That was more like the 70s, right? No, it was still in the 60s. Late 60s? 69, maybe. Okay. CIA doesn't factor into it for me at all, but well, the FBI were... does because J. Edgar Hoover was surveying the shit out of Malcolm X and J. And they MLK. were called something different before the CIA, oh, like okay. the SOS or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they were trying to be the SS basically. They wanted to be like the elite secret group of officers, you know, allowed to do whatever the fuck they wanted. I just think that there's a it's just too sketchy and too out of character OSS. for it to just be like this, oh, random, like, oh, that sucks. Mm-hmm. Either there is some bigger tie or that chick, maybe Bertha Franklin is fucking innocent. I think that 30, shooting him 30 times is just way too fucking weird. But <laughs> yeah, but I think that I think that maybe Elisa Boyer, 
maybe she just meant to run away with his money and thought that nothing else would happen. And that maybe Bertha Franken really did fucking shoot him in self-defense and fucking freaked out. But the fact is, he died in such a fucking... And and we talked about this last week. It was a shit motel too, right? Yeah. We talked... It was was kind of a hooker motel. We talked about this last week too, where it's just like, you don't want to see your idols, you know, your music idols, Dimebag Daryl... Sam Cook, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, three fucking random people there together. You don't want to see them as just dying in some mundane way. You almost want there to be more controversy or hidden agenda to make their death a little more spectacular so that it means something. Well, they are know? entertainers. But I'm just saying like <laughs> I'm joking. I'm just saying that like and that's where, you know, with Lisa Left Eye Lopez, like I almost wanted to find more about her death. I wanted it to be a little more sensational than her just losing control of the wheel. Where it's just like, it feels like it needs to be more important because they were so important, you know? Right. Yeah. So that's the death of two very different but very important musical artists. That's it. So. You can join our Facebook group. You can. Called The True Crime Dumpster. Go figure. Where we post weekly and discuss the crimes and other related things. You can follow us on Twitter, TC Dumpster, and on Instagram at True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com if you have any requests, or you can just, you know, dump in our Facebook group. We love hearing from you guys. And it's been a little more active lately, which I really love too. Yeah, dump it up. Dump it on us. Pour some <laughs> trash on me. <laughs> We also have a website where we post our source info, and I did make that a lot easier to read at truecrimedumpster.com. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and Spotify. And look for us on Patreon. I know we sound like a broken record with this for a bonus episode very soon. Now that we're both feeling now a lot that better. no one has jobs or expendable income. <laughs> Or, yeah, we might lower the costs of our Patreon, so it's not very much to join. Like, free. (laughs) Lastly, rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast. It does help us get the word out to more people. I really love when I see people from, like, South Wales and people from, like, New Jersey or just random places where I know I don't know anyone. They're commenting on our Facebook page and stuff. So, hello, Australia. I see you. I don't know how you know me, but I love you. I also do post in the case file Facebook group a lot. So that's probably why we have a couple of Australian listeners. Um, So we love you, Australia, a lot. I actually could see myself living there. But anyways. Yeah, well, she does like to pet her um, kangaroos. I know. And koalas. Yeah, drunk koalas. They're all dead. What? From the fires. I don't think they're all dead. I just think about the dead, burnt koalas. I don't know why. You can think about your dogs that are right here trying to get attention. Yeah, I know. I know. They're like, take us for a fucking walk. They're used to us doing this at like 10 o'clock at night. So anyways, we love you, Australia. We love you, the UK. We love you, Canada. Those are probably most of our listeners outside of the US. And our listener in Transylvania. Hi, Dracula. (laughs) Hope you're doing okay. I hope the virus didn't get you. I don't know if the virus gets the undead. Can't kill what's already dead is what I heard. So, yep. So tune in next time where we are going to talk about the PMRC trials of 1985. Yeah. And And Tipper Gore's flappy tits. (laughs) 
I don't want to talk about that. I'm going to talk a lot about it. <laughs> so tune in next time when we talk about that and take out the trash, apparently, with Tipper Gorsuch. <laughs> Bring a shovel. We love you. Stay bored and healthy inside. Bye-bye. Are you ready? Am I the greatest?